Our next lesson uh, comes to us this morning from the book of Ephesians. Before I read it, I want to welcome those who are worshiping with us this morning by way of live streaming. We're delighted to have you a part of our worshiping congregation and look forward to serving with you and accommodating you in any way we can. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 6 and verses 25 through 30 in the fourth chapter of Ephesians. Paul writes saying, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. So then, putting away falsehood, let us all speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up their stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands, so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts find acceptance in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There is an old-fashioned, rather archaic-sounding virtue or practice that is quite relevant to our times, to the life of the church today and to the life of the church in contemporary society. And it is a virtue and a practice that I think we would do well to embrace, and I would highly commend it to those who are being set apart to serve as elders uh, in our new class uh, as a part of this worship, worship service today. In our lesson from Ephesians 4 that I just read to you, we read these words, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It is this expression found therein, bearing with one another in love, or as it is expressed in the old King James version of the Bible, forbearing one another in love, that has become a foundational principle of the Presbyterian church. Mutual forbearance is what it is called. In our recent officer training sessions, we handed out a self-administered exam that would take the officers through a part of our constitution, the book of order, where this is spelled out. In that exam, the question is asked as follows. When men and women of good character and principle differ, what do we do? The answer to that question, which is a part of our Constitution and has been since the year 1788, states as following. 
While all teachers should be sound in the faith, we also believe that there are truths and forms with respect to which men of good character and principles may differ. And in all of these, we think it is the duty both of private Christians and of societies to exercise mutual forbearance toward each other. There it is, mutual forbearance, a foundational principle of the Presbyterian Church from its inception, really. Now, what does mutual forbearance really look like? Why is it so desperately needed in the church today and in the world today? It will come as no surprise to you that we live in a very fractured and hostile world. On every side, we've seen mean-spirited attacks of other people, character assassination, a basic lack of simple courtesy and civility. From the halls of Congress to the White House, down to the state legislature, to the town hall, to community gatherings, people are so at odds with one another, so divided, that they demonize their adversaries and their opponents. They not only disagree with one another, which is fine, but they become disagreeable in the process. And unfortunately, this unkind and unchristlike spirit can wedge its way into any congregation and damage the affection and friendship of sisters and brothers in Christ. The Apostle Paul, who had his own struggles with Uh, relating to people who differed with him on occasion, ran into this foul spirit in the churches that he helped to establish. The church in Corinth was a mess, divided over first one thing and then another, over leadership, over practices, over morality, you name it. The Corinthians were torn apart because they were divided into factions. And this letter of Ephesians is really a church intended not just for the church in Ephesus, but it was a circular letter, most Bible scholars believe, that was to be for all of the churches in Asia Minor. And here Paul is talking in the letter about the importance of peace and unity and purity. He emphasizes that Christ Jesus must be the center of our life together within the church, that Jesus alone is the source of our unity and our harmony. I told you in an earlier sermon, I think it was at the end of this past year, that whenever you're reading the scriptures, especially the letters of Paul, and you come across the word therefore, you'd better stop and see what it's there for. (laughs) And the first verse in chapter 4 is, I therefore, in light of what I've been telling you for three chapters now, this is what you are to do. The word therefore usually marks a transition. It's usually moving from doctrine or history or redemption into ethics. What are we to do in light of what has just been said? So Paul in the earlier chapters is telling the Corinthian Christians, not the Corinthian, the Ephesian Christians and the Asia Minor Christians of all that God has done for their redemption, the grace and the goodness of God, how God's purpose has been revealed in history, what he has done to redeem his recalcitrant people. And he is telling them that there is a unity you have. If you are a part of Jesus Christ, you are unified with one another, whether you like it or not. If you are in Christ, then you are connected to others who are a part of his family. And he says, we are to be unified. We are to be tenderhearted. We are to be forgiving of and loving toward one another. In Christ, we are one. Whether we're comfortable with that or not, 
We are a family of faith within the church. I have a friend who uh, was an entertainer in Charleston. He had a bar and played guitar and sang uh, most evenings of the week. And usually in between sets, he would share toast. And one of the toasts that Ronnie always used was, how did he say it? Thank God for friends because we don't get to choose our families. (laughs) We don't. But God places us in the families that we're a part of, especially the family of the church. And we must learn how to relate to one another, even on occasions when we don't agree and may not even appreciate one another. The church of Jesus Christ always has and always will face challenges and choices that threaten our unity, that will distract us, disrupt us, divide us if we let them. We're not always comfortable being among Christians who differ from us. And yet that is how we learn and grow and change to hear someone else's perspective, someone else's reading of the scriptures, someone else's commitment to a teaching of the word or of Jesus Christ. We have diverse understandings of what is happening about us in the world, different interpretations of the word of God and the work of Jesus Christ. And just as the physical body is diverse with hands and feet and ears and eyes, each part serves a function. And we are less effective if we don't honor and respect that other function that may not be ours, but belongs to the whole body and is necessary for the proper working of the body. Conservatives and liberals, evangelicals and social activists, traditionalists and innovators, young and old, We all need one another to grow and to serve most effectively. And when we focus on our differences and refuse to practice this virtue of mutual forbearance, then we become fractured, frustrated, and we damage our relationship to one another. We damage the effectiveness of the church, and we damage our ability to reach out to a world. If we cannot get along with one another, then what in the world can we offer to a fractured and divided world? To be sure, we all have strong opinions and convictions and fervent passions, vested interests, unique experiences that we bring to our life together. And we don't have to set these apart while we deal with issues. We can respect the convictions of other people. But hopefully the Lord of the church will use all of these diverse realities and commitments to bring us closer to Christ And as we come closer to Christ, we also come closer to one another. We here at First Presbyterian Church have lost some valued members in recent years. Some of them have moved on to other congregations, perhaps. Others of them have not found their place, but are not at the present a part of our church family. Some of them thought, thought the church was not conservative enough on some issue. Some thought the church was not liberal enough on some issues. But these are potentially divisive issues that confront us all the time in the world such as this that we live in. And these issues can divide us if we allow them to. The same issues we face in society are faced by every congregation that takes its witness in the world seriously. And on nearly every issue that comes down the pike, there are different values, different convictions, different perspectives And yet we have no choice but to discern and try to discern together 
What is the will of Christ for his people today? As Presbyterians, the way we go about this is that we meet in representative assemblies, we study scripture, we pray, we consult history, we look to the confessions of the church to provide guidance, we trust in the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and we try to follow the example of Jesus Christ, but then we have to make a decision as to the stance we will take or the work that we will do within the church, which is not to say we're always going to be right. The church makes mistakes. Our own constitution says that synods and councils err from time to time. But despite the errors errors we may make, most of us believe this is still the best way to try to discern what the Spirit is doing in the church and what the will of Jesus for his church is. Just imagine, think of all the issues that we're dealing with in the world today. Violence, poverty, hatred, prejudice, racism, Fidelity in marriage, capital punishment, oppression, care of the earth, responsible use of wealth, is health care a right or a privilege, terrorism, foreign and domestic, immigration, religious persecution, family life, injustice, incarceration, etc., 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 And we can break down into competing camps, as the world does, or as the church of Jesus Christ, we can sit down together at the same table and seek together what may be the mind and the meaning of Jesus Christ for our life and times. We can affirm with the Spirit that the Spirit is the one who unites us and energizes us with power from on high. We can affirm with the writer of 1 John that the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. We can demonstrate that. Of course, none of this is going to happen. There will be no working together or seeking in unison the will of God without mutual forbearance one for the other. When you get a moment, you might want to go online. I did this a few months back. Just... Google mutual forbearance, and you will find there, as I did, an article that was written by a Presbyterian minister back in the 19th century, a minister by the name of J.R. Miller. I knew a minister named J.R. Miller, and I can assure you he didn't write this because his style was not mutual forbearance back in Mississippi. But at any rate, this J.R. Miller, whoever he was in the 19th century, talks about how critically important this doctrine, this virtue, this practice is in the life and work of the church today. It's an article well worth reading. And he offers some advice. Here are some things that this J.R. Miller suggests. He said, one, guard against developing a critical spirit that is always looking for or imagining slights or grievances or offenses. Two, look beyond the action to the motive of your adversary. And don't presume some evil intention. Thirdly, practice self-control, patience, and good humor. And above else, number four, consider the example of Jesus Christ and how he related to various offenders. Just a few years ago, the faculties of Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary and Columbia Theological Seminary approved unanimous statements calling for mutual forbearance among Presbyterians 
as we were moving toward the 221st meeting of the General Assembly, these controversial issues come up at each and every General Assembly because governing bodies ask the church to address them. So they issued these statements on mutual forbearance. And it was not popular in some quarters. Those on the far left said, well, we're not the ones who need to be forbearing in love. It's those on the right. And the ones on the right said, why should we be forbearing when our adversaries are not? Let me just read you one paragraph from the statement from Austin. We suggest that mutual forbearance means endeavoring to hear and take seriously the convictions of others, even while we hold our own sometimes differing convictions at full strength. To exercise mutual forbearance does not mean being timid about that to which we are committed, but it does mean being circumspect about how we present, share, implement, and protect our commitments. We think that bearing with one another in love should discourage us both from pressing too quickly for changes not widely supported across the church and from opting too readily for actions that would further the schism already taking place in our fellowship. Rather, let us be drawn together to the table to which we are all invited by our Lord to pray and converse, to listen and to argue, to reflect and to grow into what we are becoming as a historic communion in a new day. Two years ago, James Calvin Davis, who is a professor of religion, a Presbyterian too, at Middlebury College, wrote an interesting book entitled Forbearance, a Theological Ethic Ethic for a Disagreeable Church. And he argues that the problem with many churches that find themselves divided and fractured, unlike this congregation, I have to say that's one of the things I've been delighted by, how few competing groups there are. There's a basic spirit of unity in this congregation that we should cherish. But he says the problem with these fractured churches is that on major issues and minor issues, they love their own sacred positions more than they do the wealth and the well-being of the church. And he says he roots his appreciation for and support of mutual forbearance to simply a love of the church. If you love the church, then you will be forbearing. Well, I don't discount that. There's really something to be said for loving the church and how this leads to mutual forbearance. But I think it's the foundation for this doctrine goes much deeper. I think it goes all the way back to Jesus Christ and the will of Christ for his church that was expressed in his high priestly prayer in the 17th chapter of John. Because there is where Jesus is praying fervently. He knows that death is imminent. He knows that he is very soon now going to be separated physically from his disciples. And what does he do at the end of his life? He prays for his friends, for his disciples. And not only them, he prays for you and me. Because John says he prays for all of those who would come to believe through the word of the apostles. So that's talking about the church down through the centuries. Pray for them that they may be one. Can you believe that? He's about to die. And what he's praying is that his disciples will be one going forward. Why? So that the world may believe, John says, that you sent me and that you love them just as you love me. Why does unity matter? 
Why is mutual forbearance important? So that the world may believe, may experience the love of God, and believe that Jesus is the one whom God has sent for our redemption. If our unity, despite our diversity, was so important to Jesus, the head of the church, it can be no less important to to you and me as his disciples. And there will be no unity, peace, or harmony apart from this doctrine of mutual forbearance. The more we can keep our eyes focused on Jesus, the more we can overcome any distractions, any division that may threaten us. So then let us, as officers, as members of this congregation, as disciples of Jesus Christ, remember that we are called to bear with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.